0: Tensions are spiraling in Israel, and this time I'm not talking about Netanyahu's judicial reform, the one that led to mass protests. I'm referring to more traditional tensions, like the divide with Palestine. Jews are celebrating the festival of Passover, and this year it coincides with the month of Ramadan. And so, what should have been a time for celebration has turned into a violent slugfest. What's worse is that this is happening at a shrine considered sacred by both Muslims and Jews, the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem, the holiest site in Judaism, the third holiest in Islam. It has become a site for violent confrontation again. Israeli police raided this complex this morning. Our next report tells you why.
1: This is what the Al-Aqsa Mosque looked like this morning. The Israeli police entered the mosque before dawn on Wednesday. Police officers clashed with worshippers. Israel says the raid was in response to recent Palestinian rioting. An Israeli statement said the worshippers were armed with fireworks, stones and sticks. As police officials raided the mosque, fireworks were used against them. And As is the case with all things Israeli and Palestinian, there are two versions to this story. Israel claims the worshippers were chanting violent slogans. They locked the doors of the mosque from inside and also set up fortifications and obstacles at the entrance. Israel has released footage of the aftermath of the raid. Its forces filmed the fireworks found inside the Al-Aqsa Mosque. If Israeli claims are true, the worshippers have some explaining to do. For starters, why were they hoarding fireworks, stones and sticks inside the mosque? Scenes outside were just as chaotic. There was tension in the air. The Al-Aqsa Mosque is an emotive issue for Palestinians. And every time Israel raids the site, it touches a raw nerve. This is when an Israeli bus rammed into a Palestinian car. Palestinians gathered in support of the mosque and the worshippers inside it. They chanted slogans while Israeli forces set up barriers on the road. Now the Palestinians have a different version of what happened. They say Israeli forces raided the mosque without cause and attacked innocent worshippers, leaving several injured. A Palestinian lawyer claims that Israel has detained over 500 Palestinians. Worshippers who were in the mosque when the raid occurred described what they saw. In the yard to the eastern part of the compound, the police were firing tear gas and stun grenades. It was a scene that I can't describe. Then they stormed in and started beating everyone, and they detained people and they put young men on their faces to the ground. They also beat them while in detention. Palestine was joined by Saudi Arabia, Jordan and Egypt, all of whom condemned Israel's actions. Saudi Arabia went a step further. It said Israel's storming of the Al-Aqsa Mosque has undermined peace efforts. A significant setback for Israel there, considering it wants to normalize relations with Riyadh. Some groups decided to take matters into their own hands. Palestinians in the West Bank reacted furiously, and Hamas, the militant organization that controls the Gaza Strip, launched rockets at Israel. Israel responded with ground-shaking airstrikes, which hit Hamas training camps and weapon depots. The Al-Aqsa Mosque has seen several violent clashes over the years. In 2021, clashes at the mosque triggered a 10-day war between Israel and Hamas. For the Palestinians, the mosque is a sign of resistance, their culture and nationhood. It's the third most sacred shrine in Islam, and Muslim worshippers aren't willing to share it. Al-Aqsa Mosque, despite all what is going on, is purely for Muslims and cannot be shared. Everything that is going on and happening by force will never be legitimate. Jews consider the complex one of the most sacred shrines. Ownership of the mosque remains a contentious issue, one that sparks frequent clashes. The past one year has been the deadliest in over two decades. Israeli forces have made thousands of arrests in the West Bank. Reports say, At least 250 Palestinians have been killed. Meanwhile, attacks by Palestinians have killed more than 40 Israelis. The situation is volatile. They've gone to war over the Al-Aqsa Mosque before.
0: Meanwhile, India is making a major push into Africa. India is wooing Africa, and this time with weapons. This story is about India's foray into the African Arms Bazaar. Last week, India invited the army chiefs of more than 30 African nations, 3-0, 30 nations. The idea was to pitch made-in-India defence equipment. African military leaders got a chance to inspect Indian helicopters, drones and artillery. And India is hoping that they'll come back as buyers. Why Africa, though? Why is India projecting itself as a defence supplier to Africa? Because there's a gap, there's a market. Africa cannot afford expensive military supplies. It wants cheap arms. And that's how India is positioning itself, a supplier that gives value for money. It's already found takers. Some African countries have started buying arms from India, like Egypt, Ethiopia, Mozambique, Mauritius and the Seychelles. And what are they buying? We don't have the specifics, but reports say a little less than 20% of India's arms exports go to Africa. Some deliveries have been made this year like these military trucks. They were built by India for the Royal Moroccan Army. And how many trucks did Morocco buy? Nearly 100. There's another reason why Africa is interested in Indian wares. It's because of India's collaborative approach. India is committed to not just supplying arms to Africa, it is also helping the region build its own capacities. Last week, India's Defence Minister Rajnath Singh spoke about this. He addressed the African Defence Chiefs and he promised support to Africa's defence industry. Let me quote from what he said. The Indian defence industry can work with you to fulfil your defence requirements with the aim to empower our African friends to indigenously meet their defence requirements. We are also committed to sharing our expertise and knowledge in defence manufacturing, research and development. What more can India offer? In recent years, India has overcome its hesitation on defence exports. In fact, it has been actively pushing made-in-India weapons, like advanced towed artillery guns, the BrahMos missile, the Akash missile system, armoured vehicles and light combat helicopters, just to name a few. Recently, India has been courting Southeast Asia too. Major deals have been signed. Countries like the Philippines have bought the BrahMos missile. Indonesia, Vietnam, Malaysia, Thailand and Myanmar have also expressed interest. Last year, report said South Africa was also keen on buying the BrahMos. In 2022, South Africa organized the Africa Aerospace and Defense Expo. It happened in Cape Town. The makers of the BrahMos were present there. They'd set up a pavilion. So Indian defense equipment is generating a lot of interest in Africa. And this serves two purposes. Defense sales for India and deeper ties with Africa, including defense ties. In fact, military drills are being stepped up. In the month of March, India hosted a major joint exercise, the Africa-India Field Training Exercise, or AF-INDEX. It was a 10-day long exercise. Militaries of 24 African countries participated. And what did they focus on? Humanitarian mine assistance and United Nations peacekeeping operations. So India's influence in Africa is growing, although Russia still remains the dominant force in the region. Russia is the largest supplier of weapons to Africa. In sub-Saharan Africa, Russia has a 26% market share. But the war in Ukraine has distracted Russian defense contractors. They're prioritizing the Russian military, and for obvious reasons. Even deliveries to India from Russia are now running late. And this might force African militaries to look for alternatives. India is clearly at a vantage point. And this is yet another opportunity for making India in defense. And while Israel and Palestine continue to fight the old fight over land, the rest of the region is clearly moving on, specifically the oil-rich Arab nations. They're resetting their politics and diversifying their economies. The Arab world has started to focus on sports. And the sports industry in this region is expected to grow by 8.7% by 2026. This is according to a new report from PWC. It says the sports sector is slowing down the world over, but West Asia will buck the global trend. Globally, the sector will grow by only 3.3% in the next three years. In West Asia, it may grow up to 9%. What explains this? Have people suddenly ditched fuel for football? The answer is yes. If not the people so much, at least the rulers have. They're looking at economic diversification because that's the only way forward. No matter how much oil the Gulf nations have, it is a finite resource. Eventually, even Saudi Arabia's oil wells will run dry. What happens then? That is the eventuality they're preparing for. To make sure their countries aren't left high and dry, the rulers are branching out their businesses. And driving this effort is the oil money. They have a lot of it at the moment. So they're building alternatives, investing in new industries, everything from services to IT to sports. Tonight, we'll talk about sports, starting with football. Last year, Qatar became the first West Asian nation to host the World Cup. About one and a half million fans flocked to the country, 1.5 million. Now, this is a nation with a population of just 2.7 million. So it had about one and a half times its normal population during the tournament. Imagine what this meant for local businesses. For Qatar's tourism industry in particular. The knock-on effects of sports to tourism are huge. And that's one of the reasons why Gulf nations are investing so heavily. They're also trying to attract global talent. One of the most prominent examples is Portuguese legend Cristiano Ronaldo. He currently plays for the Saudi Arabian Football League team Al Nasser. I don't expect Ronaldo's international fans to fly into Riyadh to catch him every week, but you can bet that Saudi nationals are filling the team stadium like never before. It also sets the stage for an expansion of Saudi's local football scene. On the international stage, Gulf nations have been buying football clubs for decades, Manchester City and Newcastle in the English Premier League, Paris Saint-Germain in France. These are some of the most famous examples of Gulf-owned clubs. And this ownership helps them develop local leagues. The effort is not limited to football, though. Off-road driving events like the Dakar Rally are taking place in Saudi Arabia now. The UAE hosts the Dubai Racing World Cup, which is a premier horse racing tournament. And of course, another major sport for the region is Formula One. For over a decade, the Gulf has hosted F1 races. This year's season is already underway. Races in Bahrain and Saudi Arabia have concluded. They drew in a lot of tourists, which is partially why these countries are part of the F1 circuit. Sample this. Sports tourism gives a 30% boost to the hospitality sector. Plus, they're able to attract related businesses and industries. Case in point, bell racing helmets. They've built a 60,000-square-metre production facility next to the Bahrain International Circuit. This company is the world's leading manufacturer of safety helmets. Then we have a company in Abu Dhabi, an artificial intelligence company that has partnered with the Mercedes F1 team. The Emirati company is called G42. It will provide Mercedes with data-driven insights. And Saudi Arabia does not want to stop here. It wants Formula One teams to move their headquarters to the kingdom. It wants the teams to manufacture cars and train drivers on Saudi soil. Again, think of how that could boost Saudi Arabia's sports industry. Is it any wonder then that the sports sector in West Asia is thriving? Despite the pandemic, despite the harsh weather conditions, despite human rights concerns from the West, the Gulf sporting sector looks unlikely to slow down.